Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, okay. The first thing we're going to do is take a little bit of a detour. We're going to take a little bit of a break from Marty because we need to talk about another important filmmaker, another master who uh, is very uh, influential in this story and very important. And I want to make sure we have the proper context uh, for him and, and uh, his role in this story. So for those of you who don't know, there's a very well-known, very prolific, low-budget filmmaker by the name of Roger Corman. Roger Corman uh, has directed a number of films, but more importantly has produced something stupid like 410 films. And only one of those films has he ever lost money on. And one of the big reasons that he's never lost money on them is because he knows how to keep the budgets incredibly low, so it's barely even a risk. And he also knows how to shoot a film quickly and efficiently, and and he's always been very good at, at uh, noticing young upcoming talent, and he he seems to have had a very good sense of what a young audience is looking for. Uh, a lot of his films would have been shown in at drive-ins, and a lot of the a lot of what the story was about would be right there in the title. They were usually run as B features and or you know the second run of a double feature, and they were usually class well not classless I don't want to say that um, but they were uh, I mean they were exploitation films they were films designed to bring in a very specific audience and to exploit a certain element of a genre whether that's zombies or uh, sea monsters or sex you know the uh, women in prison movies um, you know, whatever it is a young audience might want to go see. But Corman's films, especially of the f- 50s and early to mid-60s, uh, were incredibly important for Marty's generation because they were different from almost anything else, stylistically, mostly. All you need to do is look at, at one of his... Uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, uh, usually starring Vincent Price. And you can see some experimentation, some pushing the boundaries aesthetically uh, in these films. And so there's an entire generation of filmmakers, Brian De Palma, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, uh, John Landis, who were very inspired by what Corman was able to do these low-budget films that were striking. So after Who's That Knocking at My Door, Martin Scorsese goes out to L.A., and he's trying to get work, and he's having meetings, and he meets Roger Corman. And Roger tells him the same thing everyone else had told Marty, which is, oh, yeah, I'll get back to you in a few months. And nothing, of course, ever came from that from any other meeting Marty had had. But Roger Corman actually came through, and he came back with a script called Boxcar Bertha, which was supposed to be a sequel to a film he had made a few years ago called, or a few years before this, called Bloody Mama, which stars 
Robert De Niro, strangely. So when Marty gets a job from Roger Corman, that's a big deal to him. He gets to work under one of his idols. So Corman gives him the script, and he tells Marty, you can rewrite the script however you want it, so long as it has nudity or the promise of it and an explosion every 15 pages. That's it. And he also told him, worry about the first 20 minutes and the last 20 minutes because the rest doesn't matter because Corman had this theory that the audience at the drive-in uh, is going to want to know what it's about and how it resolves and could care less about the rest. And that's a pretty solid theory because my understanding is that drive-ins, especially for the audience Corman was pulling in, um, was a bunch of teens in cars doing what teens in cars do. Um, <laughs> let's just say not watching the movie. And then Corman also said, said to Marty, you have to have a chase scene in this movie. Aside from those stipulations, he didn't care how he rewrote it. So it, it changed from a sequel to not a sequel, but that's okay. So Scorsese gets to work. He storyboards literally every shot. He had some 500-plus storyboards. So when Corman goes to meet with Marty and says, how's your prep work coming along? Do you feel you're ready for this movie? Marty pulls out his boards, and after that, Corman says, okay, you're fine, kid. I'm going to leave you alone. And that was Corman's leadership style. He'd give direction but then and parameters, but then let the young talent work within those parameters. And he brought up a lot of good young talent in this era, both actors and directors and writers and uh, producers. And Roger Corman and his crew really taught Marty how to make a movie. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some of, these, some of these bullet points here that Marty learns from the crew because I think they're, they're, they're really helpful to us, whether you're making a low-budget movie or a $100 million movie. So Corman first tells him to shoot the hardest stuff first. That's a really, really good idea. Always shoot the hardest stuff first. Because you get it out of the way early, and now if you're behind schedule, you have a chance to catch up. Or if you're over budget, you have a chance to catch up or figure it out somewhere along the way, figure out where you can save or whatever. But you get the hard stuff out of the way first because it just makes everything so much easier. And the crew, the crew is going to have way more energy. You're going to have way more energy. The cast is going to have way more energy to do the, the hard stuff earlier rather than later. So in this movie, the hard stuff was the trains. And the reason trains are hard is because let's say, let's say you have a shot from, from the grassy field next to the track. The train goes by the camera. Okay. Trains don't work like cars. Trains take a long time to slow down and eventually come to a stop. And then once they come to a stop, they have to slowly build back up speed to go back to the starting point to go again. So if you need more than one take of anything involving a train, especially if you're not on the train shooting, you're shooting from the ground, uh, that's going to take a long time. It could take you hours just to get a couple of shots off because the, the sun's going to move and the lighting's going to change and... Like, everything that could go wrong probably will go wrong at some point shooting that kind of stuff. So 
the thing Marty learned to do, and Corman told him shoot the trains, but the thing Marty learned to do was figure out what's going to be harder and get that done early. That is that is one of the best pieces of best most practical pieces of advice I have ever heard on filmmaking. And I've seen this go wrong. I've been on shoots where they put the hardest stuff at the end of the day and the crew absolutely hates you for it because we can guarantee no matter how how well we've done our prep something's going to go wrong. The more moving pieces you have, something goes wrong. Um, the more difficult uh, a camera move is, something's going to go wrong. Someone's going to miss their marks. Some, the timing's going to be off. Something's going to be wrong. Uh, someone's going to get nervous and flub a line. Um, no matter what it is, the hardest things to do, no one wants to do at the end of the day. Get them done early. All right, moving on. Uh, Marty also credits the DP... Uh, first AD, the first assistant director, and the executive in charge for teaching him how to make a movie. See, Marty had decided to shoot it largely in master shots. He wanted to shoot this film just, you know, one shots, very, um, which which really is kind of a 50s studio style. You know, you got a two-page dialogue scene. Well, let's just do it all in one shot. You know, let's just put the camera on the dolly, and we'll start wide, and we'll kind of move with the actors a little bit, and then we'll, you know, kind of end wide, and that'll be the shot. It's sort of the old studio system oneer, and that's how Marty had really planned most of the film. And everybody said, "You can't do that. That's not the way this movie's going to go. That takes a long time to do it and do it right. Because if anybody messes up, you got to go back to the beginning. The same thing. This is the same thing that Hitch experienced with um, Rope. It, you have a ton of rehearsal time to do it with. Um, everything has to go exactly right just to get the shot. Can't be out of focus. Uh, it has to be exposed right. You know, uh, everybody has to hit their marks exactly. The the dolly, the camera, um, uh, uh, the dolly, the focus puller, the the actors, the boom operator. Everything has to be perfect to get those. It's much easier, maybe less quote artistic. Although I don't know anybody that watches the 50s, you know, the old studio films and says, wow, that one was really artistic. Um, it's much easier to just shoot coverage. And when you have limited resources, I guarantee you no one's going to hate you if you just shoot coverage. But the other thing that this film taught him was just because I storyboarded everything doesn't mean that's exactly what I'm going to get. And to be flexible with that plan, basically what he adapted, basically how he adapted in making this film was understanding the idea that the storyboards aren't set in stone. The storyboards are there for you to understand what you need to shoot. It's, it, it's a way for you to get down on paper your ideas about how this scene needs to, needs to be covered. And from there, once you get on set, if you're falling behind, maybe you can figure out how to combine two shots into one. You know, maybe you can figure out that you maybe you don't need some shots or maybe some shots are more necessary than others. That's what the storyboards can be there for if you work that way. And that's one of the other things that we want to talk about. Not only are we talking about two different systems behind two different filmmakers if you want to compare Hitchcock to Scorsese because both of them were big storyboarders. Both of them were big preparers. 
obviously Hitchcock had a massive studio on his side every time he went to go make a movie, so he had all the resources in the world. Scorsese at this point in his career does not. That's not the point. Hitchcock had a way of doing things. Scorsese had a way of doing things. And that's okay. It's okay if you don't do everything exactly like Alfred Hitchcock. It's okay if you don't do everything exactly like Marty Scorsese. What I'm trying to get across here is that there are a lot of really, really good ideas when it comes to making films. And everybody kind of has to find their own way in that, their own mix of certain tools and preferences. And what Marty was able to figure out was how to be prepared but flexible. And I think that's really important, especially when you're making a low-budget film or any film, because not everything goes the way you think it's going to go. That's just how it is. Um, so we get to post-production. Marty edits this film. I think that's one of the things that we need to talk about. Marty is an editor in the same way that Hitchcock was an editor. These are directors who think about how the movie's going to cut together. They don't think about it in shots. They think about it in edited sequences. So Marty edits this movie, but he can't take credit for it because of the American uh, Cinematic Editors Guild Union, whatever, or the Association of, of Cinematic Editors. I think that's what it's called, uh, the ACE. That's a really powerful editing union, and Marty's not in it, so he can't take credit for editing this film. Um, so there was some other guy who took credit for it, like his assistant or whatever actually took credit for the editing. But Marty actually edited this film himself. And he had a two-hour cut of the film and a 10-minute promo. So Corman screens the two-hour cut and the 10-minute promo. And he comes back and he, says, and he gives Marty one note. He says that the movie needs to have the same energy as that 10-minute promo. So Marty goes back to the editing room. He cuts out a half hour of the movie and leaves us with basically the cut we have today, which is a little bit under an hour and a half. So... Marty, under the tutelage of his hero, Roger Corman, makes a movie. A movie that he's, you know, got a little bit of pride in. And at this point, he had befriended John Cassavetes, who I mentioned in the Who's That Knocking episode, uh, independent New York filmmaker, um, kind of inspired a lot of the young filmmakers from New York, including Marty. So Marty had gotten to know Cassavetes. So he takes this film to Cassavetes and says, what do you think? And Cassavetes is, uh, he's constructive with his criticism, which I think is another good point. If you don't like something, you need to be able to tell people what they did well and be able to tell people what you think they could do better. Um, because just straight criticism is not helpful to anybody. But be constructive with your criticism, like Cassavetes. He says, you did some good work. He says, uh, I can tell that you liked your actors and you got good performances out of them. But this isn't the kind of film you need to make. He, 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 Scorsese recounts this story as basically, literally, Cassavetes told him it was a piece of shit. Sorry, pardon my French. Um, but that's what he told him. Um, it's just an exploitation film. And you need to go back to what you were doing before, like, who's that knocking at my door? You need to tell personal stories. You don't need to be doing this exploitation for higher crap anymore. Is basically what he told him. And Martin Scorsese, um, this is captured. This is a quote taken straight from a book, Scorsese Interviews, same people who put out the Hitchcock Interviews series. Uh, and this is from an interview called Martin Scorsese's Gamble. 
Scorsese says, and I quote, about Barks Car- that Barks Carbertha had a few nice touches, but it was basically a blood and gore exploitation fi- flick. That's all it was. So now we're at Marty's second film, and the story starts with something positive. He's He gets hired to make a movie, which was not the case with his first film. And he's working for one of his heroes. And at the end of the day, he still has not really made a movie that he feels he can be proud of. Two movies into his career, and he's still not there. There's still learning, obviously. Learning really how to do movies right, how to do them economically, how to do them in a way that makes sense. And what does he have to show for it? He has, as he calls it, basically... A blood and, gore, blood and gore exploitation flick. That's it. But you need to understand these are not failures, these first two films. This and Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is a very flawed but, but worthy film to watch, I think. They're just stepping stones to what's next. And what's next? Well, I'm glad you asked. What's next is Mean Streets. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Uh followed by uh, possibly Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. We'll have to look into that, which is a studio film that he was hired to make and a very good film, a film that wins one of his actresses an Oscar. Um, and then, of course, Taxi Driver, the obligatory you know, uh, rocket ship that, that launched Scorsese into the uh, annals of cinema history. So... Understand that early failure isn't really failure. It's just part of a learning curve. I think that's all we got today for uh, Hitchcock University for this class session. Uh, Real quick before we go, I want to announce something. Um, My research collection has uh, led me to have some excess movies. Uh, so I want to give you guys a chance to win some of those movies in this new kind of giveaway that I've um, uh, that I've devised. Um, those movies are: I have a DVD copy of The Age of Innocence, 1991 classic. I have a DVD copy of Mean Streets. I have a Blu-ray copy of Raging Bull, and then I have a DVD and a Blu-ray copy of Goodfellas. Those will be given away separately, not as a combo. How do you win one of these uh, uh, one of these spectacular Scorsese films? Well, it's very simple, and I'm going to post all this on the social media pages and pin it to the top, at least of Facebook. Uh, probably, if I can do that on Twitter, I'll do that too, um, so that you guys can reference this wherever you need to. If you like or follow a page, whether that's on Twitter or uh, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever, if you like or follow me. You get one point for every platform that you uh, that you like or follow. If you share one of or one of our class sessions on social media, you get two points for every platform. Uh, email me screenshots so that I have evidence that you did that. You can crop them or however. Just make sure that I see that it's you, so I know who to credit, and that and that it's a new post on on a social media page. If you share one of my pages on social media, so if you share uh, SoundCloud page, I don't even know if you can do that, but if you can, or if you share my Hitchcock University page 
on Twitter or on um, or on Facebook or whatever and say, hey, I've been listening to this guy. He's cool and whatever. That's three points for every platform that you do that with. If you like one of my tracks on SoundCloud or, you know, quite frankly, I haven't even listened to anything on Stitcher or TuneIn Radio or whatever. I don't even know how that works. But if you can like something there <coughs> or Google Play, do it. Send me a screenshot because I don't, because uh, I'm really bad at keeping track of those things. Um, make sure that I know it's you who did it uh, so I know who to credit. If you subscribe on iTunes on or have subscribed already, let me know. Send me some evidence, screenshot, whatever. Uh, that's two points. For everything you download, whether it comes off of SoundCloud or iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, don't care. That's three points for every download. And if you write a review on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever, everywhere you write a review, uh, I'm going to give you five points on every outlet that you that you write a review on. Make sure you send me screenshots so that I know that it's you who did it. Now, I know a lot of you aren't, aren't you know, maybe excited about the Raging Bull Blu-ray, but could care less about the DVD of Mean Streets, or maybe you have a DVD of Goodfellas and you want the Blu-ray. Here's the thing. The earlier you get involved, the better chance you have, because I'm just going to keep a tally uh, this whole semester. Every single time I get a screenshot or get some evidence of you doing one of these things, make sure you email to those to HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com. Those points carry over. I don't care if you win. I don't care if you didn't win. You get points for every giveaway. Uh, so I know we don't have a lot of time before the Age of Innocence giveaway, but we have a ton of time for the Goodfellas Blu-ray uh, Blu giveaway. That'll be the very last one we do. And everything you do now counts toward that. So the more you participate as we go through this semester, the better your chances are at the end. Those points are just going to roll over, win, lose, or, or draw. So the Age of Innocence DVD. Uh, I will announce the winner on the episode that drops. That is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, or on the class session about Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. That will be Saturday, February 24th, and the winner will be announced on that episode on the 26th. So you have until... I'm going to do this by mountain time because that's where I am. You have until you have until 9 a.m. Saturday, February 24th um, to get all of your points in. 9 a.m. mountain time. That's the same time as Denver. Um, 9 a.m. mountain to get your points in. If you want a copy of Age of Innocence or you want points that you can bank later for Mean Streets, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, etc. All right. Um... That's all I got. Please reach out to me at HitchcockUniversity at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, uh, anything. Or you can uh, follow us and reach us at um, on Facebook, page there, Hitchcock University, or uh, at Twitter, Hitchcock underscore U as in university. Uh, also, please leave a rating, review, comment, like, whatever – at uh at wherever it is you you tune into this class if it's um soundcloud tune radio stitcher apple podcasts google play what have you um thanks again for attending we'll hold class in two weeks where we will talk about the classic mean streets <laughs>